Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. Also, if you want to ensure that you never miss an episode, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast software, including iHeartRadio, Spotify, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. I also want to encourage you to check out our other podcast, including the Old Time Radio Superman show at otrsuperman.com. Over a 10-year period, we went through every circulating episode of Superman, both the serials and the few half-hour programs. And we have a thousand episodes for your listening pleasure at otrsuperman.com. And you can find all of our uh, podcasts over at the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio at greatdetectives.net. But now it is time for this week's episodes of Dr. Tim Detective. First up from March 27th, 1950 is The Dog Who Did and Didn't. And then there are a couple of lost episodes, and our next episode is from April the 17th, 1950, and the title is The Chest of Dynamite. The Tim Detective, to bring you by transcription, The Mystery of the Dog That Did and Didn't. It had been a tiring week. And as I washed up after some experiments I'd been making to determine whether a certain murder case had involved the use of poison, I thought what a swell day it would be for a picnic in the mountains. It was early in November, and from my laboratory window, the mountains looked as if they'd been sprinkled with powdered sugar. I'll get Sandy and Jill, I told myself, and we'll make this a Saturday to remember. You see, Jill's my landlady's daughter, and Sandy lives up the street a ways. They've both been mighty useful from time to time in helping me to solve some mysteries. I turned off the water, dried my hands, and started to go out into the hall to call Jill and Sandy when the phone rang. Hello, Tim? Yes? Jarvis speaking. I've got a case that looks right up your alley. I sighed. There, I thought, goes my holiday in the mountains. Because whenever my old friend Dr. Jarvis calls, it's sure to be a case of more than ordinary interest. Jarvis works for the health department, and I've been consulted by him on problems before. He continued. Yes, it's right in your neighborhood, too. They've just taken a woman to the hospital, and there's no doubt about it. She has Rocky Mountain spotted fever. What? In November? Interested, huh? But the tick season's been over since, well, the middle of the summer. Well, you can examine the woman yourself if you want to, but three doctors, including myself, have made the diagnosis, and it can't be wrong. Severe chills, followed by a fever of 104 or 5, pain in the muscles and joints, and get this, the spotting of the skin has already started this morning. But where do I come in? Well, you and I know there's one cause and one cause only for the spotted fever. Ticks. She's been bitten by an infected tick and recently. But as you say, the tick season has been over for several months now. Why don't you go over to the house? Now, oh, look, Jarvis, what makes you think I'm the one? Well, you're supposed to be good at that sort of thing. Oh, okay. But don't expect any results. Spotted fever in the winter. This plane doesn't make sense, that's all. Now, give me that name and address. 
on my top coat, I tried to make sense of the puzzle. The address was that of Mr. Herman May, just around the corner from me. I recognized the name. There was a Willie May, a few years older than Jill and Sandy, who played with him sometimes. And speaking of Sandy and Jill, it was curious. I thought that I hadn't seen anything of them this morning. Usually on Saturdays, they'd be clamoring at my door. Well, I needn't wonder any longer. I called, come in! Like a freak, a yapping white dog ran between my legs, jumped up and down in greeting, and then dashed around and around my laboratory, barking and sniffing in great excitement. Sandy and Jill followed the dog into the room more slowly, but obviously bursting with excitement. Tiny, Tiny, here, Tiny. Come back here this instant. Oh, dear, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith. Please carry him and he got away. Come here, Tiny. A little ball of fur, silent now, came dancing into the laboratory from my adjoining bedroom. I blush to admit that my bachelor housekeeping isn't all it should be. The dog proved that. For two days I've been looking for that particular sock the dog carried in his mouth. It uh, must have been under the bed. Put it down, sir. Put it down at once. The dog dropped the sock and wagged his tail nearly off. Honest, I'm awful sorry, Dr. Kim. He belongs to Willie May and his mother's in the hospital. You mean the dog's mother? Don't be ridiculous. I mean Willie's mother and she has something awful. I forget what it's called. It's called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And it's caused by the bite of a tick. Despite its name, the disease is found in almost every state of the Union. Only funny thing is, there aren't supposed to be any ticks around during the cold season. Good gosh. How did you find out? About Mrs. May, I mean. Detectives know everything, Sandy. Hey, how bet I saw him. Dr. Tenson called him in the case already. And you can't keep us out of it because Willie May asked us to take care of his dog for him while he's staying over at his aunt. Because Mr. May's working and can't get off and he left the key with us so the doctor who's going to investigate can get in. And all the time it was you, Dr. Tim. And, and what are we waiting for? Let's get going. A few moments later, we unlocked the door to the May house and went in, silent and pondering. Our equipment consisted of flashlights for peering into dark corners in our search for the presence of another tick or two, which might have accounted for the illness of Mrs. May. Each of us had an envelope and a pair of tweezers so as not to run the risk of crushing an infected tick and getting some of the deadly microbes upon ourselves. After a few joyful homecoming yelps, Tiny disappeared to some secret place of his own. We began the search in earnest. We divided the front room and the adjoining dining room into areas. Calling across to each other as we searched for a chance tick that might be hiding. Hey, I don't think I've ever even seen a tick, Dr. Kim. Well, you can't miss one if you find it. They're grayish-brown little bugs. Oh, less than half the size of your little fingernail, which makes them pretty hard to see when they're in their natural setting. Yeah, I know. I found them in rotting logs in the woods. But why does the bite of a tick give you spotted fever? The bite of most ticks won't. But there's one particular kind of tick. We doctors call it Dermacenter andersoni, which can pass on the disease to human beings. Gee, what a name. But how do the ticks get the fever? Well, they don't, Jill. They only carry the organism that causes it. I wish you'd quit using those words. What the heck's an, an organism? It's an agent which carries a disease, but it's so small that it can't be seen except through a microscope. Yeah, but I still want to know... Well, these ticks bite sheep or squirrels or prairie dogs or coyotes that have the disease, and then they bite people and pass it on to them. They're what we call carriers. They can pass spotted fever on, but don't have it themselves, you see. Just like the mosquitoes that cause malaria. Yeah, exactly. Or like typhoid Mary. We learned about her in school. She gave hundreds of people typhoid after she'd recovered from it herself. Didn't even know she was carrying the disease around. Hey, I found something. Don't touch it. Let me see it. Oh, I thought it was a tick. 
It's only an old piece of rubber band. Well, kids, we've covered these two rooms thoroughly. We can give them a clean bill of health. Let's move on towards the back. we'd covered the downstairs thoroughly, Sandy and Jill had received an elementary course in Rocky Mountain spotted fever. They learned that it's mostly in April, May, and June that ticks are active. They were made to realize the necessity for protecting oneself with heavy boots, stockings, gloves, and tightly buttoned shirts before going into areas in the mountains which are known to be full of ticks. They learned that the only way to make sure even then is to have one's body thoroughly inspected each evening before going to bed. I explained how to remove all ticks gently from the skin and remove them without crushing. They learned that the clothing must be inspected as well, and all danger of ticks hiding there eliminated. It was a good lesson, but we weren't any further along in our mystery. Just as we finished looking over the downstairs part of the house and the basement, the door opened, and Mr. May came in. We introduced ourselves, and soon were deep in conflict. Oh, yes, Dr. Five and your old hunting clothes is a sheepskin jacket that I might have taken into tick country. I don't. I haven't been outside my car in the woods or the mountains for several years. Well, what about the dog, perhaps? He had a... Tiny? No. Tiny's never been on a trip during the year we've had him. Tiny, hearing his name, came joyfully dashing in, bearing as a trophy exactly one half of what looked to be a bedroom slipper. Loudly, he laid it before Mr. May. We all quickly agreed that such a short-haired dog couldn't very well carry ticks without their being easily found. Besides, he'd had no chance to pick them up. There was nothing to do but continue our search. Slowly, we moved upstairs, Mr. May leading the way. Or rather, Tiny leading with all of us following behind. It was in the closet of Mrs. May's room that our first break came in the case. Sandy gave a shout. Look, it's it. Right here on Mrs. May's fur coat. Quickly, we gathered around. I took the coat, laid it on the bed, and then one by one hauled the clothes out of the closet. By the time we were finished, the count was five ticks. Under my magnifying glass, all of them we easily identified as the carrier of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, the wood tick, Derma Center Andersoni, in the clothes closet of a house in town months after the tick season was over. Here was a mystery indeed. In fact, in the excitement of our discovery, I overlooked what turned out to be one of the most important clues in the whole case. Tiny, the dog, came bounding into the room with a small box in his mouth. He shook his head back and forth as if he were worrying a bone. Suddenly, the lid of the box flew off, and over the carpet flew out a mess of butterflies, the fruit of some collector's search of the previous summer. Tiny, shame on you. Go away. Here, Dad, pick them. I'll pick them up. And with a farewell to Mr. May and a promise to resume our detective work later... I took the kids out to eat. It was an hour later. We sat over dessert in a downtown restaurant, with both kids feeding their week's allowance into a jukebox while we discussed the progress of the case. Well, I've got a theory anyway. I think it was murder. Oh, now, Sandy. No one's dead in the first place. Now could it even be attempted murder? 
That one person in a million would think of scattering wood sticks around a room in the hope that the right victim would get spotted beaver. Oh, I don't know. Perhaps Mr. May hated his wife. Oh, that's complete and utter nonsense. What old sticks could have bitten him? Or young Willie? For me. Hey, that reminds me. We looked all over that doggone house, but we didn't remember the secret room in the basement. Secret room? What is this? A Middle Ages thriller? No, oh, it isn't really a secret room. It's Willie's photographic laboratorium. Well, I'll sort of keep this collection, too. But how do you tell about it? Sure, you go through kind of a winding passage, all painted black. The light won't spoil the pictures Willie develops. Oh, let me stop and think a moment. What sort of collection does Master Willie make? Oh, butterflies and bugs and stuff. Well, gee, I bet that's where Tony got that box of butterflies. Now, hold on a second. You mean the dog can go in and out of that room as he pleases? Sure he can. Well, but you wait, Dr. Jim. What's the connection? I'm not sure. But I think I know how Mrs. May got spotted fever. You kids hop in the car outside and I'll make two phone calls. And maybe I'll come up with the answer. And I did. The first call was to young Willie May at his aunt's house. I asked one question. Willie said, yes, he did collect a lot of miscellaneous insects the summer before. Some of them were ticks. The second call was to a specialist friend of mine who is an authority on the habits of insects. He assured me that certain insects, the wood tick among them, can live in hibernation for months and still have enough life to attach themselves to a human being and cause the disease. It was obvious that Willie's tick collection, scattered around the bedroom by the dog, just as he'd scattered the butterflies, was the solution to the mystery. And it turned out later it was. Sandy and Jill were full of questions, but only one or two were to the point. Well, what about Mrs. May? Will she get well? Well, she has an excellent chance, Jill. Spotted fever is often fatal, but one of the new wonder-working drugs is being used in a lot of cases these days. They're using it on her. Gosh, isn't there some kind of stuff like vaccination for spotted fever? There is, but... There isn't much reason for anyone to have those inoculations unless he plans to go into places where ticks might reasonably be found. It's not a sure method of preventing spotted fever. Even if used, the injections must be taken six weeks before exposure. Being careful is the only answer. Well, this was your one case where a dog was the carrier of a disease. And yet he wasn't. Not in the usual way. Yeah, the mystery of the dog that did. I puzzled over that one. And finally came to a compromise. It's the mystery of the dog that did and didn't. This is Dr. Tim, detective. To bring you by transcription, the mystery of the chest of dynamite. You couldn't have asked for anything nicer than the way that day started out. Sandy and Jill, their special pals of mine, had insisted that this was the day for the hike. Four miles over the mountain and back again. I tried to protect my aging bones by protesting, but it was no use. I was outvoted. Gee, gosh, Dr. Tim, we've already explored everything around the cabin. Well, sure, what's a vacation in the mountains for if you're just going to sit around and be lazy? Besides, it isn't healthy. Everybody needs exercise. All right, all right. But as a doctor, I resent having my own advice flung in my teeth. I merely said that a certain amount of mild exercise was good for the Constitution. That's just it. 
the hike over the mountain will be just exactly that certain amount and no more. Oh, my aching back tomorrow. Oh, come on. All right, all right. Jill, you fix up a lunch. You bet I will. And Sandy, be sure the car windows are rolled up in case of rain. Okay. You better lock it while you're at it. Never can tell who might come prowling around, even this far off the beaten track. Check. And that's how I got myself mixed up in what I like to call the mystery of the chest of dynamite. Because if we hadn't started off on that hike, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, among the unusual features of the mystery, perhaps the chief one was that I got mad. Good and mad. More angry, in fact, than I had in all the years I'd gone through life as a combination of doctor and detective. Because the chief thing that makes me mad is criminal carelessness and stupidity. Well, anyway, we headed for the mountains. Stop and rest at all. Exercise, my dear Jill, is excellent for the human constitution. You said so. Why should we pamper these soft bodies with restful ease when vigorous and health-giving stimulation lies right upon our path? Boy, the next time I open my big mouth. Of course, if I weren't about to give out myself. Ah, relief is inside. I'd walk till you dropped. I'm dropping already. However, unless my eyes deceive me, that looks like a farmhouse to the left, about a thousand yards away. Oh, boy. Milk. Gallons of it. Yeah. No, no, no. No milk, unless it's pasteurized, kids. We'll have to stick to canned milk until we get back to town. I was thinking of a nice haystack to stretch out on, with the owner's permission, of course. A picnic lunch in the past. Hey, somebody's waving at us. Hmm? Well, Why, theme? He's running from the house, and most is to come over. I still do Oh, oh, yeah, I do. I wonder what's the matter. See, somebody must be in trouble. Well, get your second wind and follow me. Maybe somebody's been injured. Come on, hurry up. In just a few moments, we were getting the story from the old man. He must have been near 70. And so when I see you, I was hoping it might be some of the neighbors that could go for some help. Or just my doggone luck to have it turn out to be some city folks. Say, uh, don't suppose none of you can ride a horse, well, can I you? can. Sure, me too. Now, just a minute, everybody. This, what's the matter? Matter? Well, matter enough. Why, I'm up here all by myself. Too darn lame to get on horseback. This darn I told that darn wife of mine, and, and that fool daughter, too, that it just weren't right of taking the only automobile on the place and going up freighting off there to the city. For a week, mind you. Why, they ain't even due back or day after tomorrow. And if you ask me, that's going to be too late. Yes, sir, too late. And then they'll blame me. Now, look, blame you for what? Is something wrong? Wrong? Why, everything's been wrong since my daughter's husband got killed in that there war. Boy, this ain't no place for a little kid, this ain't. And I said so more than a thousand times. Please, is somebody hurt? I'm a... Hurt? Why, there ain't nothing here to hurt nobody. Why, it just came down to the sore throat as first he did. Nobody can blame me for that. If Miss Moore hadn't gone up straight to the old I think he means there's a sick kid in that house. Why, of course there is. Ain't I been telling you why? Well, good gosh, why didn't you say what was the matter? Why didn't you realize... I didn't wait to hear more, but left Sandy and Jill explaining to the old man as I dashed inside the house and found the bedroom. Sick kid was an understatement. I didn't know what was the matter, but as I stooped down over the bed and got a look at the child, about five years old, I'd guess, I knew one thing. The fight was now with death. 
I'd been in some tight situations, but never one like this. My car, and of course my medical bag was in it, was several miles over the mountain. The nearest phone was 14 miles away. A child was dying. And for help, I had two kids and a doddering, half-scared-to-death old man. Silently, I worked over the child, trying to ease the breathing, going over in my mind the things that might be wrong, summoning all the knowledge of my lifetime, trying to think what treatment I could give. In a few moments, the old man entered. You're kind of sick, ain't he? Very sick. First off, seems to be some kind of poisoning. When did he eat last? Well, let me see now. Oh, must have been four or five days, reckon. He ain't wanted nothing since. Mm-hmm. What did he eat? Oh, he ain't ate nothing, and I ain't ate myself. Not been fine, except in this darn rheumatism. Seems like every year the darn rheumatism... How did rheumatism... it start? You mean the rheumatism. Well, the I guess... child. Mm-hmm. Sore throat, cold, fever? Well, he did sort of complain about feeling hot and chilly and, and said his high throat was hurting. I went over a rapid list in my mind. Diphtheria. None of the signs. Scarlet fever. Same. But something toxic, something poison was working in that child's body. And unless I could find out, the end was a matter of hours. The pulse was rapid, thready, the breathing difficult, and the temperature, even without a thermometer, I knew it was dangerously high. Suddenly I had a thought. I turned to the old man. You drive a car? Me? Nope. Never been behind the wheel one whole uh... I can, Dr. Tim. I know I'm not old enough to have a license, but my dad's been teaching me. Where that car has to be driven, you won't need a license, Sandy. I've got to have that medical bag, and I've got to have the car here in case I decide we dare move the child and get into a hospital. And I can't leave. It'd be as bad as murder. You'd think you could get the car here over that trail we came in on the other day? Well, I think so. I ought to be shot for letting you try. And I'm afraid it means a life. Here are my keys. Catch. Now run. Run over the mountain as you've never run before. An hour passed. The child was resting more easily. Jill and I took turns wiping his face and trying to make him more comfortable. With straining ears, I listened for the car. Would Sandy make it? Well, it was too soon to tell yet. Lost in thought, it wasn't until Jill repeated what she was saying to me that it sank into my consciousness. Dr. Tim, the old man says he doesn't want to bother you, but maybe it's time to give Jimmy some more of his medicine. Jimmy. Strange. I never thought of the child as having a name. And then suddenly... What? What was that you said? His medicine. The old man's been rambling on about it since we came. With one bound, I was at the door to the bedroom calling the old man. In a moment, he appeared. Yes, sir, a fine kind of doctor not to give them folks something they can take. Why, that poor little kid in there... You've been giving this child medicine? Well, of course I have. Real drugstore medicine, too. The doc down there, Seven Mile, he fixed it up for me when I had a sore throat last winter. Same as kid Jimmy here, Doc. Quick, let me have that bottle. Yes, sir, I got right here the medicine cabinet. As I turned my head once again to listen to the sound of a motor car, an idea was beginning to shape itself in my mind. If that medicine was what I thought it might be, I snatched the bottle from the old man's hand as he came inside the door. Dr. Kim, what's the matter? Sulfur. You've been giving this child an adult dose of sulfur for five days. Yeah, give it to him just like it says here on the bottle. But, Dr. Kim, I thought the sulfur drugs were good for sore throats and all kinds of infections. Yes, like rat poison is good for a rat. You mean I oughtn't have done it? Sit down and listen. Listen carefully before you murder someone else. More people have been killed by taking the wrong drugs than are killed in any war. 
But the doc told me... Yes, he told you to take it, not that child. It was your prescription for your illness. You were safe taking it. It wasn't meant for Jimmy. Do you know what's happened to that child? Oh, what, Dr. Kim? He's dying of uremic poisoning. That sulfur drug, too big a dose, has formed crystals in his kidneys. Has plugged them up until they can't work for Jimmy anymore. All the poisons, the waste matter from the kidneys have been killing him for days. Oh, gee, well, Doc, I didn't mean to do anything. Of course you didn't mean to hurt him. But you've tied the safety valve down on the boiler. Oh, I'd like to take the contents of half the medicine chests of this country and dig a pit and bury them. Evaporated iodine, left for goodness knows how long, to burn and scar an innocent victim. Poisons taken in the belief they're antiseptics. Sleeping pills that kids get hold of and kill themselves. Ammonia, lye, cleaning fluid, right in the medicine chest for folks to drink some night. Medicine chests. They're chests of dynamite, that's what. And you... You... No... What's the use? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lose my temper. Okay, Jimmy. Lie still now. You'll be better soon. The next half hour was broken only by the softly spoken conversation between Jill and myself as we sped our thoughts to Sandy in the car. A rough job for a kid with no experience in driving. Dr. Tim, can you do something? I mean, when your medical bag gets here. Mm, I hope so, Jill. It all depends upon what I did the other day when I left my laboratory. Well, what? I mean, how does that happen? Well, I had a supply of spinal anesthetic. You know, the stuff you use for operations when you don't want to give ether. You inject it into the spine. Uh Uh-huh, I know. I think I put it in my bag. I'm praying that I did. Will spinal anesthetic help? Uh, It will probably save Jimmy's life. You see, Jill, in the last war, a lot of soldiers took an overdose of sulfur. They didn't know they were supposed to drink lots of water and take baking soda with it. And at first, the army doctors thought the only way to save their lives was to operate upon the kidneys. You mean there was another way? Oh, sure. The doctors discovered by accident that when they gave the spinal anesthetic to get the soldier ready for the operation, the anesthetic itself often seemed to start the kidneys to working again without the operation. Golly, then if you do have some in your bag... Yes, even at that, it's dangerous business, Jill. To inject that anesthetic is dangerous in itself. It really should be done in the hospital. But driving 40 miles over these roads would mean sure death for Jimmy. Listen. Oh, Lord. It has to be. Run. Run, Jill. Quick. Well, Sandy was the hero of the day, all right. Although I wake up nights sometimes in horror at the thought of his wrestling that car over the trail to the ranch. Lux had been with me. That medicine was in my bag. A couple of times we thought we'd lose Jimmy, but he did pull through. But the funny thing was the way my getting sore acted on the old farmer. As soon as Jimmy pulled over the hump, he had a celebration. I was napping peacefully on the couch when... Okay, Doc, I done it. I tore that medicine chest plumb out of there. Ain't gonna have no more dynamite around here. No siree, bub. <laughs> well, I chuckled to myself. You're never too old to learn. 
This is Dr. Tim Detective saying so long until next week at this same time when Sandy, Jill, and I will bring you the exciting transcribed mystery of The Poisoner at Large. Welcome back. In The Dog Who Did and Didn't, I had to wonder a bit about Dr. Tim thinking of doing a picnic in November. I've never heard of people taking picnics that late in the year. You know, usually if you get past September, picnic season is over. And it sounded like the story from the description may have been set in Colorado. And I was in Colorado, and after October, you're really not going to want to go on a picnic, usually. At least I wouldn't think, but maybe in 1950, people took colder weather picnics. Now, it does appear that since the time that this episode of Dr. Tim made, they've discovered two additional ticks that could be carriers, in addition to the Rocky Mountain Wood Tick, both the American Dog Tick and the Brown Dog Tick could be a risk. So, collecting ticks may not be a great hobby for kids. In the second one, the issue that's dealt with with people taking each other's medications is still a thing today that causes a lot of health problems. Today, of course, uh, people would be encouraged to go into a pharmacy or some other location to turn in old prescription drugs rather than disposing of them themselves. I do have a few other thoughts on these episodes, but we received a couple of listener comments regarding Dr. Tim, and I think that I will kind of address those as I respond to uh, those listeners. We start out with an email from Derek who writes, Adam, 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 I don't know where to begin. From what I can tell, this is a man who is a doctor who practices quote-unquote medicine in his apartment. So his landlady is fine with Dr. Tim hanging out with these two all day, fighting crime, blood transfusions, and even getting the measles vaccines, all from his apartment. I guess it's better than Dr. Tim practicing medicine in his van down by the river. Uh, nod to Chris Farley. Uh, I hope you, mom, and baby all had a fantastic Christmas. Well, thanks so much, Tim, and uh, we did. And apologize for my bad reading. I was trying to imitate it, but I actually, the whole van down by the river thing, I did not see what that was from. Uh, so I heard, uh, them doing it on, uh, 
Riff Tracks uh, commentary on Karate Kid 3. Which, by the way, is the best way to watch uh, Karate Kid 3 with the Riff Tracks commentary. Uh, but essentially, I was doing an imitation of their imitation. So it's a second or third degree imitation. So I hope I didn't sound too off. Uh, I think that in terms of realism, there's a point. There is a literary precedent for detectives to be doing some exotic things out of their home. Here, of course, I think of Sherlock Holmes, who was doing all sorts of chemical and firearms-related experiments in the flat at 222B Baker Street, which he was renting from Mrs. Hudson. Now, certainly there were doctors who had their private practices attached to their homes. But, like, in things like Tales of the Texas Rangers, they had a whole house and a specific area that they could use for their practice. In this case, you know, Dr. Tim has an apartment. And that the fact that he's a doctor does set him apart from Sherlock Holmes. But only to an extent. Uh, he's not like Dr. Watson seeing patients all the time. So maybe more like Holmes. But then we get to this episode and we have a description of him as this very messy bachelor. Now, I'm not one to judge people's housekeeping usually. But I have an impression that... Dr. Tim's apartment may not be the type of place that you run a lab out of. And, you know, if he were to stay in practice long enough, he would probably run into some defense attorney who would kind of question how his bachelor housekeeping uh, interacts with his ability to protect his test from contamination. So, it's an iffy uh, proposition, I think. Then we have a comment from Joshua, who writes, Seriously, what parent is letting their kids hang out with this doctor? I guess the free medical is a bonus, but the dead bodies and using them as helpers for gunshot victims seems a bit much uh, for a regular guy to hang out with. Well, a fair comment, Josh. I guess there are a couple of things that can be said on this. Uh, the first is uh, we have to keep in mind the target audience. It's the children of the 1950s, not 21st century adults. I think it's fair to say that kids in this era wanted to be part of the action. They didn't necessarily have to be the main character. And that's why you saw the proliferation of kids' sidekicks. Whether you're talking about Robin in Batman, or Bucky in Captain America, or Junior in Dick Tracy, I think that there was a great desire to be mentored in something important, to be part of the action and to have an adult there who was an authority figure who trusted you and who you would have your back i think made the adventure even more appealing in a way 
So I guess the question would be what red-blooded good kid wouldn't want to hang out with uh, Dr. Tim? Help solve crimes. Dig around in potentially disease-filled housing where you could catch Rocky Mountain spotted fever. As an unlicensed and minimally experienced city driver, drive a vehicle across a treacherous mountain road that has doubtless claimed the lives of many experienced adult drivers. You know, fun stuff for kids. Now, obviously, a lot has happened over the years. Some of it, I think, has been adults taking some of this media more seriously, particularly comic books, which were originally written targeted towards a juvenile audience uh, that began to grow up and grow older, you know, and as uh, people grew up, they're kind of like, okay, this does not make any sense in a even a semi-realistic context, and that has to be worked through. And I think our views of childhood have also changed in terms of the amount of physical freedom that uh, parents give their children, which, which is a big controversial issue. I will add one thing that might make more sense for at least why Jill's mom is okay with her hanging around with Dr. Tam. The series mentions Jill's mother being the landlady, and that is kind of a literary note and something that was used quite a bit, and you can go back quite a ways, where a woman is widowed and opens a, a rooming house or converts her home into a rooming house where they take in boarders. And so the lack of mention of Jill's father implies to me that he's probably out of the picture. And I don't think I'm contradicted in any future episode. And there were a lot of uh, kids who lost their parents in the war. But of course, there are other non-war related incidents that could have happened. Uh, plus, if Jill's mother was widowed, we don't have the first episode. It's possible that Dr. Tim had some pre-existing relationship with the family and may have moved in in part to be a friend to Jill. But even if that wasn't the case, uh, Jill's mom may have welcomed someone who she was obviously comfortable enough to have stay in her home who would kind of fill that father figure gap to a degree. As for Sandy, we don't know. I don't know how involved his father is in all of the things Sandy does when he's not giving Sandy driving lessons. Thank you so much for the comment, Josh. I really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Robert, Patreon supporter since March of 2019, currently supporting the program at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support, Robert. And that will actually uh, do it for today. A reminder... If you want to be sure to never miss an episode of the podcast, please be sure to follow the program with your favorite uh, podcast software, including 
Apple uh, Podcast, Stitcher, or the Amazon Music app at Amazon.com slash OTR Detectives. If you are enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to rate and review it wherever you download your podcast from. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of Dr. Tim Detective, but join us back here tomorrow for Dangerous Assignment, where... Dravna, I'd like to talk to him about the things that have been happening up there lately, the men that they've found hanged by chains. I'm afraid my husband cannot tell you much about that, Mr. Mitchell. Why not? This morning he was found hanging from the end of a chain, dead. What? Oh, I'm sorry. You are sorry. That is nice. I am sorry. And Anton? He is dead. Mrs. Getnick... He did not believe in the curse of the castle. He found out too late. It is true. What do you mean, the curse of the castle? Above the mine, right on top of the mountain, stands a deserted castle. The legend is that one day, hundreds of years ago, the baron who lived there was found hanging from a chain. It's been a curse on those mountains ever since. I see. (laughs) Uh, Look, Mrs. Getnick, that kind of a legend is something that superstitious mountain villagers like to scare each other with on winter nights. But you, living here in the city, surely you don't believe... I was born in those mountains, Mr. Mitchell. Those are my people. I tell you, that curse still lives. Were not for Lubo, they would have all moved out of the village by now. Who's Lubo? A brave man, yes, and a good one. It is he alone who has been able to keep the other villagers from fleeing? Oh, thank you very much for your information, Mrs. Getnick. I think I'll go up to the village in the morning and see what I can find out from Lubo. I see. You're like the others, Mr. Mitchell. What others? Those who did not believe in the curse, like my husband. So go ahead. Go to the village of Dravna. Laugh at the curse of the castle. And then one morning they will find you, too, dangling from the end of a chain. And on that cheerful note, I leave Mrs. Getnick. The next morning I rent a car and head up through some rolling hills toward... I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box 13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.